see trees of green Red roses too I see them bloom For me and you And I think to myself Virgin Valley Artists Association welcomes you to the Art Box, recorded in our beautiful Mesquite, Nevada, and sponsored by the Virgin Valley Artists Association. Our association has something for everyone of all ages. Come and get creative with us at 15 West Mesquite Boulevard, or find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, or on Facebook as Mesquite Fine Art Center, also on Facebook, the Art Box. Welcome to the Art Box. Today we are recording in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada at Rayart Martin's house. And Rayart, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. We all just got done going out to the Jean Dry Lake bed. Uh, even though it is December, it was hot and no wind, which is amazing. And we were out there to revisit three different land art pieces and take some artists and, and get them some inspiration for this project that's going on, which is called Modern Desert Markings. And one of the co-curators is here with us today, Katie Hoffman. Hi, Katie. Hi, Steve. Hi, Ria. Katie, can yes. you tell us a little bit more about Modern Desert Markings? This is really about rediscovering five historic land art pieces in the Las Vegas Valley. Again, today was the third of three outings. We went out to visit previously Walter De Maria's Las Vegas piece north of the city also Michael Heiser's double negative and then today we were on Jean Dry Lake exploring the sites of Jean Tanglay's study for the end of the world number two which was an art action he performed in 1962 uh, and then we drove across the playa to the site of Michael Heiser's rift number one which was the first of his nine Nevada Depressions series. And then that also is in the same vicinity as where Michael Heiser performed the circular surface planar displacement drawing, which is a mouthful. And that was an, a piece that was comprised of several large circles drawn on the playa surface with a motorcycle. So in which the artist actually drove in large circles and was followed by an aerial photographer to capture that piece. Again, uh, what we saw in the playa today was just dirt and dryness and landscape, but um, we were we were exploring that to kind of to be immersed in the same situation that had inspired these original art pieces. So Katie, why would you be taking the artists out to these places? Modern digit markings, it actually, it comes from a, a preservation side, really. It involves wanting to set foot in these landscapes and not just to see what is, it's not there. The art pieces are not there. The idea is not to, to record what's physically on the ground, but to capture the view sheds and the feeling of the place. And so 
for from a preservationist, you can look and say, this is the landscape, this is the direction that they were facing, you know, we know approximately where this art action happened. But for another artist to be there with us, and then to use that as inspiration to create create new art, um, is kind of the experience that we were hoping to facilitate. So we really had two different things going on on the playa today. We had preservation experts from NVFCP, and then we had the artists who came along who ultimately will be creating new art pieces based off of their experience studying and being immersed in these old art pieces. You know, and all of them today that I noticed all went off on their own way and, and were very busy and very focused. Yeah, absolutely. So the artists that we brought with us, they were chosen from a pool of nearly 70 applicants. We ended up choosing only 10, which was a nearly impossible task to whittle it down. There was so much talent, um, so many people who wanted to be involved in this project. Ultimately, who we chose were people who were going to go out and who really understood that the, the landscape is a living, changing environment that there's nothing static about these pieces and they wanted to create something that was an homage to that same feeling and so no direct translation you know no one's going to go out there and blow things up on the playa it's more being in this environment and knowing that the original piece and what it's relating to and how they were using that landscape we brought a variety of artists who were you know using the inspiration of the landscape in different ways we had one artist taking rubbings of the playa surface to capture those textures and then is taking with them, you know, shovelfuls of earth to work with in their artwork. We have photographers out there, we have sculptors out there who are picking up pieces of debris that are going to be incorporated into their sculptures. And all of these things are going to be brought together in an exhibition that will also show the original art pieces and we'll talk about how to visit the landscapes. And so then the, the layperson, the person who is, is viewing the exhibition, will also have the tools to be able to go out and have the same experience, to be in the landscape, to feel inspired, to know how to visit responsibly. Because of course, then we're circling back to the our preservation work and in VFCP, we don't want to send people out into the desert, into any environment and without knowing the ethics and the safety and how to explore and to be inquisitive and to do things like make art, but without disrupting the natural habitat. We don't want to disrupt anybody else's experience. And so of course we're following leave no trace principles. We're trying to not, we're not doing what Michael Heiser did. We're not going out there and, and digging big trenches. When we're making this artwork, we're trying to reflect the modern view of land usage and to try and uh, interpret the land art movement in in a modern sense. Okay. And these sites are, are very accessible today. They are, yeah. And so where we were on the playa today, it's accessible to anybody. And it's, it's really a fantastic place. There were a lot of people out enjoying this public land besides just our group today. There's people out on their motorcycles. There's people out there in campers who are staying for a while. So there's a lot that happens. And it's interesting how the land is used today versus our recent history and even the deep past here in Southern Nevada. So speaking of the past, um, you said that these are historic artworks and you mentioned NVFCP and preservation ethic. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role and with NVFCP and 
and some of the goals of this modern desert marking. NVFCP is Nevadans for Cultural Preservation. I am the president of that organization. Rayette Martin is our executive director. She and I have been working together on that project or with that organization for about seven years now. As which, long as I've known you guys. Over nine. Nine years? Okay, see, it's been a long time. But yeah, it's been, it's an in evolving organization. We started out wanting to educate people on just what's out around us, you know, talking to people. They can't preserve what they don't know about. You can't follow laws you don't know about. Starting with just the really, the basic hey, this is where we are. We're not the only people who ever lived here. Let's be respectful to everybody's culture and let's be respectful of the landscape itself is definitely just our our basic tenant. And so coming from that place, we want to reach out to as many different groups as possible. So I started out doing when I was working on my anthropology degree and working in the SHPO office and then becoming involved in Uh, That's the State Historic Preservation Office. And as an intern, I got to do a lot of hands-on archaeology, see a lot of the cultural resources in Southern Nevada. And it really impressed upon me how it's not just fragile, but it's, it's amazing. And that we have a really unique situation in Nevada with so much public land that there's really very few places that you cannot go here. And so that really, it's it's an amazing opportunity, but it also means that all of these resources have threat. And we want to uh, preserve those places by not discouraging people from visiting them, but just teaching them how to visit them responsibly. Fast forward through that work as we have evolved with NVFCP, Modern Desert Markings kind of came about after we had a a little bit of a shift in programming after we were working in... (laughs) kind of jumping all over here. So we were working in Lincoln County for a while, for a couple of years, so just north of Clark County, doing a lot of preservation work in that area. And one of my main roles on those projects was to kind of, we were doing outreach and we are so we're developing posters, we're developing board games, we're developing a lot of different materials to reach the public. And it started to occur to me that there's this huge overlap with the arts world and that we really need to be tapping into this resource, these people who are sympathetic and inspired and who also would have similar goals without realizing it. Because as an artist, you're not inherently a preservationist, but you're very in tune to cultures. You're very in tune to the handwork of of other people. So as both an artist and an archaeologist, I could be on some of these sites and feel just so inspired that when the time was right, modern desert markings just kind of, it it was born of, well, these resources are 50 years old, they need to be preserved. But then also it's like, who's really going to care about these resources? Well, more so the art community than the preservation community. And so that it was the perfect opportunity to marry my two worlds. And it's really just blown up from there. Having the Barrick Museum and the staff at the Barrick Museum on the campus of UNLV has been enormous resource that has really helped balloon this from just being a kind of a makeshift art exhibit for the library or community center, the way that Rayette and I had envisioned it into a full-blown open call for artists with 65 entries and international applicants. This, um, this is huge. Yeah, it's gotten huge. Is yeah, and so we've got 
we've got enough interest in the art world that our exhibition is really going to be making a statement right where we needed it to. So we're reaching a whole new audience with this and our roots in preservation is something that comes through in all of that. And the, the 10 artists you've selected, and I've been able to meet all of them, just amazing people, talented. Very involved in landscape and public lands and they have their own statements to make through their pieces. So I'm really excited to see what this is going to culminate in. And at the Barrick Museum, the beautiful part about that is it's free and accessible to the community. So anybody who's interested in viewing this can come and see it in person, but they also have an online presence. So once this is completed, they have records of all of their exhibitions that have been there. So it's going to live on beyond this moment when you have it. So I'm really excited to see that. Absolutely. Our artists actually were, were lucky. Like I said, we did have international applicants of the 10 artists we chose. We've had, we've had artists travel in from New Mexico, from LA, from the Bay Area. I have been traveling down from Northern California where I'm living currently. And so we have people who are dedicated to this, who are coming from all over, which is really exciting. So we're getting not just the perspective of a Las Vegan, not just the perspective of a native Nevadan, but the perspective of people from all over who have something to say about land art. We have generous funding from the Nevada Arts Council and uh, the National Endowment for the Arts, as well as Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for Humanities. We also are have been partially funded by Dean Usher of the Department of Fine Arts and at UNLV. And the Barrick Museum and has put some of their resources towards this as well. It's true. We even had an, an anonymous donation come through. We've had a little bit of press and controversy. It's not directly related to what we're doing, but our exhibition publicly advertising and putting out our call for artists coincided with the opening of a land art piece that has been 50 years in the making, and that's Michael Heiser's City, which is in Garden yeah. Valley, yeah, Lincoln, Lincoln County. County. Yeah, Garden so, Valley. and that had has been the subject of numerous articles not necessarily all favorable. People are questioning land use. In, in a sense, what we're doing, it's become controversial because people want to know, why are you doing an homage to land art? You know, this is a destructive thing. This is a, a big hole in the ground, or this is paving over desert spaces. What we're not doing is elevating that movement as if that's still the current attitudes, because we understand that it's not. And, you know, as representatives of, of NVFCP and as preservationists, you know, we aren't all about people going and digging big holes in the desert. Also, I think the public has, they've changed the way that they would react to such types of, I mean, even Jean Tonglet's blowing up artifacts in the desert isn't, would not be welcomed on primetime TV the way that it was in 1962. And so we just, we have, we have a different cultural perspective and that's really what we're hoping to reflect. We get to kind of flirt with controversy a little bit on that one. I think the arts are a good way to do that because it can help people talk about difficult topics and bring in new perspectives. That's why I'm so excited to see 
what's going to be produced by these artists because you didn't pick them because they all support X, Y, or Z. They're going to come at it from different perspectives and they're going to have different ideas based on just visiting the sites with us. Absolutely. We tried to choose artists who had the widest range of voices to be heard. So it really will be a very diverse show. It's not just going to be a repeat of the same old thing. There will be a lot of, I mean, we will be representing the historic works as well. It's context for our new artworks. And that's really the, the feature of our show. So yeah, it was interesting. I did hear one of your artists, I think the last time we went out, say that, and that was um, double negative. That I want to see this because I don't agree with what he did. Yeah, absolutely. And I sort of have the same type of feelings. When I first started researching land art, it was sort of a coincidence that all of this came about. I met my co-curator. She was uh, she was my professor. I, it was my last semester of art degree at UNLV, and we were online because of COVID. And so I was just taking an upper level elective that seemed kind of interesting. I had never been to Double Negative, despite having worked in Overton at the Lost City Museum. It was always just kind of like this annoying thing I knew was over yonder, but didn't really feel a drive or an artistic connection to it. I guess I didn't understand his concept, but just I didn't understand why you would want to go and see the defiling of a landscape, you know, in the same way that some people have feelings about Mount Rushmore or places that are national monuments, you know, because it's the defiling of a landscape and this was sacred to somebody. And so why would we want to visit that and take pictures of that and be present there? And this, my last trip out there, yeah, like that was the first time that I had seen Double Negative and I was really impressed with the place. The scale is is really impressive when you get down to it. It's something that happened there. <laughs> My own personal feelings on Michael Heiser just became irrelevant. It was It was still impressive in the way that anything is impressive. It, it felt a lot like doing archaeology when you're walking up on a site and you're, you're seeing something for the first time. Interestingly, I did take a picture of a modern glyph that someone had carved into a rock inside of the slit of double negative. It was nothing that belonged to a previous culture. Someone was bored sitting down there. But it was interesting that we just, we have these impulses to leave these marks and every culture has done it. And um, it's so it's not unique in the desert. The scale, again, it's a little unprecedented, but it felt organic being there, which is so weird to say. It felt just as natural as being on any other historic or prehistoric archaeology site. And and we'll let our listeners know that they can see this on Google Earth. Yeah, you can. You can zoom right into Mormon Mesa, just north of Overton, Nevada, and you can see a large slit in the earth overlooking the Virgin River. It's, It's really something, so... Yeah, and I'd like to say that if you just Google double negative, it'll show you where it's located. But a little disclaimer, the road out there, for the most part, is good. But as soon as you turn off and you have to find your way, watch your tires. There's some sharp rocks and make sure you practice safety. Oh, yeah, it was a little bit of a journey out there, kind of bumpy. So no real four-wheel drive, but I was glad that we had trucks to ride in because I wouldn't take my sedan for sure. Okay, you want to give us the, the dates? Sure. Our exhibition will be opening at the Barrick Museum on the campus of UNLV on, uh, let's see, the 14th of March. We're running from the 14th of March until the 8th of July. Our opening reception will be on the 24th of March. It's open to the public. We're going to have 
untold surprises. <laughs> we have programming yet to be scheduled, but will be amazing. So we have lots of ideas and we have a lot of, of really talented people who are, are just chomping at the bit to be involved in this. So. Yeah, and I, I heard that the room, the area for the exhibition has expanded oh, threefold, fourfold? Yeah, absolutely. So our, our humble beginnings imagined just a small slice of the gallery space and so we were first scheduled to occupy just the workshop gallery in the back of the barrack and now we will be one of two exhibitions up at that time and so we will actually be occupying around half of the gallery space. It's going to be a real treat. I'm really looking forward to seeing it all come together. We've got some some great programming. Yeah, me too. I feel like from being involved in this, from going from each one of the outings with the artists when you're out on a bumpy dirt road for hours and then you're walking around in the blowing wind and it's cold those were our previous visits you kind of bond with each other you get to know each other and so i feel like this is like a community of artists and preservationists and volunteers that are all kind of making this happen so it's really exciting to see how that's all going to pull together oh absolutely this is my first curatorial experience but having been on the the artist side of it this is unique you know and so it's really neat that everyone has gotten together and met each other first and has discussed not just their art but discussed the art that came before them discussed the landscape, the natural features. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about tortoises today as we were in their habitat. What kind of plants are we looking at? What kind of ground features do we see? What's what what kind of rock is that? There was a lot of that type of of information that people were able to gather by being there and just participating in those different conversations was really inspirational. So I know that like the minds of our artists were expanded through this experience. Yeah, I was interested in the car, talking to him. Yeah. On the way out and then on the way back. Things had changed a little bit. Yeah. Well, so for our first outing, we were all in the car together for a few hours driving out to our very remote site at uh, Las Vegas Peace. And so that was actually, it was it was a fun outing to do as our first artist outing because usually, Rayette and I were used to field work. Steve, you're used to field work, but you're usually with people who are preservationists or who were there for a specific cause and everyone is out there to do the same thing and this is the work we're going to do. And so instead, we're having these conversations about like, well, what are you going to do out there? And what are you going to do out there? And why did you bring that with you, you know? And so um, there was a lot of different things going on, which was really interesting. And they bought a range of things. I can remember the first time out, now the second time out, um, our artist in my car had four cameras. Yeah. And we've had artists with shovels. Uh-huh. We've had artists. Art, artists. We've had artists. <laughs> we've had artists who have taken home buckets full of dirt. Yes. Um, today, I think they picked up some trash. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. I shouldn't say trash. They're artifacts. They are. Not until they're 50 years old or older. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't buy that one. <laughs> okay, they're trash artifacts. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Well, somewhere in the middle. Yeah. No, um, we've had artists showing up with props to take photos of, and we've had artists taking dirt to make art with. We've had an artist in a camp chair. Yes. Taking observing. Taking it all in. And taking observing. it in. That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, she was over there writing poetry today. Yes. She was. I'm excited. I'm so excited. We've got poets, 
We have 2D artists, 3D artists, performance artists. We have so much going into this. It's so fun. We've got a lot to look forward to. Thank you for inviting me to help too, by the way. Oh, absolutely. You're at the very top of our list for most of our projects, being so involved as you are in what happens in Southern Nevada and having your finger in just about every preservation pot there is. It's it's awesome to have someone who, like myself, is kind of sitting on that line between the arts and the preservation worlds. So you were the perfect choice. Thank you. And, and plus, it helps that I have 10-ply tires on the forerunner. It's true. And extra seats in your vehicle. <laughs> you have to have a love for exploration and an acceptance that, yeah, you are going to get a flat tire and you are going to have to replace your shocks and you are going to get your paint scratched and all of those things yeah. that come along with it. And once you find somebody who has all those qualities together, you know it's going to be a great adventure. Absolutely. Yeah, so today was two forerunners and a Tacoma. Mm-hmm. This isn't a commercial for any particular car company, is it? Well, we, I, can all, I can always go after them as, um, Sponsor. as sponsors. <laughs> Today I'm, I'm sponsored by Roberto's Taco Shop. So. <laughs> we love Roberto's, right? Yes. <laughs> Move to Vegas, Roberto's. That's right. Some post-field food. Always. So, Katie, you talked about being at UNLV and you took this land art class. How did you get from taking a land art class to being a co-curator of Modern Desert Marketing. Well, the thing that really impressed me when I was taking that class was that we're in a place where there's a high concentration of land art. And so even though I took the class kind of in a, in a sense of this isn't a medium that I feel attached to or that I really understand or that I even really support, I took it as someone who is really interested in land use and how, you know, how these things are received because as someone so enmeshed in the the preservation world, you know, I, I think it's really kind of audacious that you would go out, that anyone has the, you know, the hubris to go out and do this to the land. like. Really? You, how dare you? But they, they, they show up with a bulldozer with an eight-foot blade yeah. and, and make a square one foot deep. Yes. It's, it, it, you know, I had, a, I had a lot more questions going into it than I did like an affinity for it, right? So I wasn't judging the medium so much as just really wanting to learn about it. Well, what I learned was that we're in a really unique position here because we have these land art pieces that are situated on public land. Usually these things happen on private land. And so usually that conflict that I was feeling with it isn't present. The people, the artists, um, the patrons, they would they would secure the land for the artists or the artists themselves would buy a parcel of land to work upon. And so that's the case with a lot of examples of major land art that you can visit today, you know, so Spiral Jetty and Sun Tunnels and Lightning Fields, these places that you hear about, like the hot button land art sites, there's not that same conflict of these are our public lands. Then there also isn't that same urgency of these are historic resources that need to be preserved, which was my next thought was, well, this is our public land. Those lands are vulnerable. There could be a solar field or a power line or a road cutting through one of these areas. And if we don't have a preservation record that these art actions happened in our deserts, then they could just, they could be bulldozed under, which is a little bit ironic because they were done with bulldozers to begin with, but a touch. Yeah. And so we just wanted to make sure 
that we, A, were able to relocate these sites so that we could pinpoint where the art happened, and that B, we took that data and we put it into a repository that would be accessible to people planning future projects. For us, that repository is going to be with the State Historic Preservation Office. We are collecting all the data that we need to put onto the standardized forms to get into the right format to then enter into their databases. So then anytime that someone is planning a project in the state of Nevada, they have access to this centralized resource that will then highlight these art sites as places of, of cultural interest that should not be just disregarded. And then it also sort of mitigates that the accidental erasure of something. Again, you can't protect it if you don't know it's there. Yeah. I think one other thing to mention here is that for those of our listeners who don't live in Nevada or are familiar with Nevada, I believe that 90% of the land, maybe more in Nevada is owned by the federal government. I believe it's closer to 84%, 84%. or I could be wrong and it's 84% Bureau of Land Management. But it's a, it, outside of Alaska, I think we have the most public land of any state. Yeah, pretty much when we go off road, we're going into Bureau of Land Management. Managed land. Overwhelmingly so in Nevada, which, I mean, it is an enormous benefit. It is something that the public has access to Um, living in the state of California, you know, unless it's a designated park, it's off limits. You don't just get to wander freely in most states the way that you do get to in Nevada. And it's definitely not something that we've ever wanted to limit. We are pro-recreation. We are pro getting out there and seeing it and definitely part of our exhibition is to encourage recreation to encourage people to go out and to visit these sites but again to do so responsibly and what i think is interesting is from a preservationist standpoint a lot of people assume that preservation means keeping it as a snapshot the way it is now and these artists they there's a word that kept coming up and that's ephemeral can you kind of describe that a little bit Yeah, so well, especially pertaining to the artworks that we were experiencing today on the playa, when they were made, it was known that they would not last long. So the artworks themselves were ephemeral. But what we have is a record. They were created with a very intentional record through photographs and video and written accounts. And so we know, like, where these these things happened. We know... We know the, it, the, the, the ins and outs of it. We just can't physically go see it on the landscape, I guess yeah. is what I'm trying to say. But even like a larger piece like Double Negative, we're not trying to keep it uh, the way it is. We're not trying to freeze it in time. It, even that piece is meant to be entropic. It's meant to degrade over time. It's meant to have that uh, the natural forces playing on it. And in a lot of ways... What we saw there was that there also is human forces playing on that. We saw graffiti scratched into rocks. We saw we saw a rock that had a a review, like a one or two star review written on it <laughs> next to the side of double negative. So someone left less a like a physical yelp there. What was the review? Um, I think it was one star. I didn't understand it or something. It was it was a little tongue in cheek out there beside the side of double negative. Like those aren't discouraged. Obviously, we don't want someone going out there and leaving their own marks in the form of spray paint or, you know, destruction. We don't want someone else going out there with a bulldozer and and adding 
any marks to the landscape. But what we want to do is uh, make sure that people aren't interfering with the natural processes that are happening. You know, we're not trying to shore up the walls. We want to document it as it as it goes, but we don't want to prevent those things from happening to it. Yeah, for being 50 years old, it's still in good shape. It's in great shape, But you yeah. can say, see some of the walls are beginning to cave in a little bit. Right. Yeah. I'm right. not I'm not sure I'd go into double negative and spend the night. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there was something about that side of the mesa that was a little foreboding. There's an energy there, so yeah. I don't know. You might not be alone out there. <laughs> oh, okay. Spirits of the Ancients. Or the the Polish. There was the Polish negative. So I don't know if we can talk about them because we don't know who created it. We had the the landmark on the way. So there's definitely locals who are out there. <laughs> yeah, there's another piece of land art. It was the, the folks like Lisa Hayes and them. They were doing Save the Mesa. And they went and collected trash on the Mesa. And they she was telling me the other day how to get there. It's around there somewhere. They've taken all the trash and they've made an homage to save the Mesa. Hmm. So I don't know about Polish double negative. That was kind of tongue in cheek, actually. Yeah, I believe so. I think it's just yeah, the locals having fun out there. It's still it's interesting, you know, to me as a another layer of that land use argument. There's people who live here. There's people who are working and ranching here. Um, as we were out there on the Mesa, a large truck went by hauling something and then went down the other side of the mesa you know there's there's stuff happening out there that's pertinent to current life so it's not as if we're we're talking about a place that no one goes or that is so far removed from civilization that you could go out there and do whatever you want like this is still somebody's backyard this is still important for the local and whatever they're doing out there agriculture <laughs> and um <laughs> so well down in the valley yeah because the virgin river cuts through there yeah absolutely and and when lois i don't did you guys look at that on um google earth but there's another that looks like land art um, down in the valley i actually want to get up there hmm. yeah. i shouldn't say get up there get down there yeah see what that uh that formation was yeah yeah and I do know when we were at the Las Vegas piece, which is the one we went to in the first outing, that it was a little bit more remote. It's never really that remote. There were um, a lot of cattle there and a guy keeping an eye on his cattle and there was some watering areas. And so it is still actively used. So somebody from Las Vegas may think, oh my goodness, that's so remote. There's nothing going on there. But honestly, you're going to run across a couple of people every day. Yeah, and the roads out to the first one were really good. Mm -hmm. They were, and yeah, and that's really one of the things is uh, think of these these land art pieces as occurring in the middle of nowhere, but it's not nowhere. It's still very relevant to the people who are living in these remote places, and so there's there's really a lot going on. Katie, want to tell us a little bit about you? Sure. Katie Hoffman, president of Nevadans for Cultural Preservation for about the last nine years now, apparently. I'm both an artist and an archaeologist, and I'm based here in Southern Nevada, and also where I'm living currently up in Northern California. My uh, hometown of Paradise has recently become relevant <laughs> to my life again, so made the change and moved back up there about two years ago. 
And that was right around the time of the fires? That was about uh, two years after the fire. So Paradise, California is now infamous for having burned down a small town in Northern California that was destroyed during the campfire. That was November 8th of 2018. About two years later, I moved back to my hometown to join my family there and to be part of the rebuilding of Paradise. It's a role that I'm, I'm happy and proud to be partaking in. It's slow going, but the town is recovering and there's more and more housing cropping up daily, people coming back to town on the regular. We went from a population in the tens of thousands to now having four to 6,000 residents maybe. So we're getting there slowly but surely. It's a, it's really a great tight-knit community now. We were a large small town before and now we're or super small. My life there basically revolves around my daughter. I have a 17-year-old. She goes to Paradise High School. I have started substitute teaching at Paradise High School. So when I'm not curating and doing field projects and and hitting the road to work um, down here in Southern Nevada, I can be found at the high school. <laughs> is, is she ever in one of the classes you substitute for? Yes, she has been. Actually, I was the art teacher last week. I got to have my daughter and her and a few of her friends in my class, which was kind of fun. Oh, so you're, you're going to tell me that she doesn't torture you? No, she's a good kid. And it's a small enough cool school community that I'll be walking through and, and people will say, hi, Jen's mom. And I'm <laughs> not exactly sure who what student that is but no thankfully we're on we're all on good terms there so <laughs> aside from that my background is is diverse i lived down here in nevada for for 12 years i came here cuz i had been married to the military we moved to nevada from germany i lived in germany for 4 years and i lived in korea before that for a year and that's when i was active duty in the air force my world travels were at first obligated or <laughs> obligatory, it really kind of piqued an interest. So by the time I went to, to Germany and was separated and my child was born, my sights had shifted. So I was no longer working with the military and I became a full-time artist at that point. It was, I didn't start studying ar- uh, archaeology or anthropology until I moved to Nevada. Oh, so it was art first. It was. It's kind of always been art for me, like since birth. You know, you just kind of born that way, I guess. But I did. When in Germany, I I, uh, I used to make things and sell them in the traveling bazaar. And when my baby was little, I would sew and and take her with me. I'd have my kid in a playpen and a, a little table with my sewing and and sell it. And it was a real humble way to be doing something and immersing myself in new cultures and to be traveling around and be doing art while I was still trying to find my footing as as a mom and as a not an airman, a little overwhelming coming out of that world, making that transition. And so even though I was still attached to the military because my husband was active duty, I had the freedom to really experience my host culture and to to lean in a more creative direction. And so I took advantage of that. And I, I want to keep keep doing the art thing, but I do want to ask you, you know what I'm going to ask you, what, <laughs> what did you do in the Air Force? I was a special operations aircraft weapons specialist. So I worked primarily on guns, 
50 caliber and 7.62 caliber Gatling guns. Those would be mounted on special operations aircraft primarily, um, in my experience, uh, with, with helicopters. So I worked on H-53 and H-60 helicopters, mainly at the Gunner Tech School in New Mexico at Kirtland Air Force Base. Thankfully for me, because I, I tend to be nonviolent and didn't really love my my position in the war machine, the, the guns that I was that I was loading on aircraft were used um, primarily against prairie dogs on a training course and not against any people. Things changed though. I enlisted before 9-11, which instantly changed everything. And when I separate, at the time that I separated, I actually had been, I was being transferred into a bomber squadron um, overseas and I was highly uncomfortable with that role. And so I separated at that time. So, um, but my active duty years, I did spend, yeah, working on, on guns. Okay, well, thank you for your service. Thank you. Uh, that may have been difficult for you to talk about. I'm not sure. But you had told me before on a hike about what you used to do. So now we can go back to art. Absolutely. It's it's more comfortable for me in the art world. Um, although, you know, that experience, the military was a fantastic experience. And I don't mind talking about it. It, it was, you know, it's where I found myself. I got to travel the world. It's, it's how I figured out what I wanted to do. And so... Uh, I'm very grateful for having that. However, uh, moving on from it was important as well. And when I came, what I really wanted to do was go to school. But having a small child, living overseas, it didn't really happen until I moved to Nevada. After all of that, it was about 2009 when I moved here. I still had a three-year-old at that time. When she was six and went into kindergarten, is when I started college. And she, her first day of school was my first day of school. I started at CSN and uh, wanted to be, well, I was a history major, double major art and history, and realized really quickly that I, I somehow liked history, but hated history. And I couldn't reconcile that until I took an anthropology class. And then I realized that it wasn't necessarily the dates and the, and the names and the famous figures and the, the narrative. It was the objects and the cultures and the deeper study of who these people were, not necessarily like who were the standout individuals, who were the people that we need to memorize and learn about. It was more that it was those little pieces of what has been left behind. And I found it fascinating. And so basically I instantly changed my major, became all about archaeology. It was another life-changing decision it's pretty good for rayette and i too yeah no we appreciate it yeah it worked out great (laughs) we didn't know it at the time but yeah so yeah so by the time that i graduated with my my anthropology degree it was 2014 2015 and i took an internship at the state historic preservation office and was working as the program assistant at the site stewardship program. And that is when I met Rayette. And that was about a year after she had started Nevadans for Cultural Preservation. And so she kept being like, join the nonprofit, join the nonprofit. Like, and being the go-getter that I was, I was like, I'll come to your meeting. And so I think I started out as the secretary way back then. And, um, We'd, we'd have our board meetings and, you know, our, our goals and our projects were a lot different then. We were kind of like a booster club for the site stewardship program. So we were, we were really like kind of two parallel missions, you know, like we really wanted to support that 
mission first and foremost. And so it kind of turned into like being about all things preservation in Southern Nevada. And then when the nonprofit grew legs, our role at the SHPO was ending. And so it just kind of organically took off into this whole new venue. You know, like we had our own projects by then. We were writing projects that didn't have that same relationship with SHPO. And so it just, it, it really branched out. It's been a very... How do you say? You yeah, know, we, we were always excited, though, at Sites Torch, that oh, we get to go with um, Rayette and Katie on our project because we knew it would be fun. Yeah, we still, um, as a nonprofit, the Nevadans for Cultural Preservation, we tap into all those wonderful volunteers that are part of the Nevada Site Stewardship Program. And then Katie and I having our grant projects and stuff that we used to do through the State Historic Preservation Office learn how well we can work together and we can each take our own projects and run with them. And so Katie was instrumental in, in pulling together this Modern Desert Markings project, designing it, coming up with all, all of it, but then also writing the grant and, and securing the funding. And so uh, we've been able to kind of explode this year um, because of her varied background and, and the other things that we've done. So it's quite exciting. Well, it's great. Well, because on top of this, Modern Desert Markings, which is huge, we have other huge projects as the nonprofits. Rayette's got all kinds of things going on with the off-road community and working with um, developers in the area to, ha- to erect signage near sensitive cultural sites. We're able to to not only dabble in the things that interest us, but really be in tune with the needs of the land managing agencies and realize that there's this gap between what they're capable of doing, what they have resources and manpower to to do, and where we can fill in the blanks, say. And I think there's um, just a really great, having Katie have an arts background and an archeology span background, some of the we'll say deliverables, get all technical, but just being able to do the public outreach in a way that is different and interesting, that's where I think the arts really have a huge impact in the different types of projects that we do and what Katie's doing with this Modern Desert Markings. It's being able to bridge those two and utilize those two um, together. A perfect storm. That's not a right thing. (laughs) A perfect double major. Yeah. Exactly. She said she's always been into art with a little archaeology, and I thought, you know, artists with a side of archaeology. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, perfect for this podcast. So, Kim, getting back to your art again, is there a breakout piece for you? Huh. Wow. You mean a, a breakout, something that I'm inspired by, or one that I've created that a, a, a breakout art piece, a, a, an art piece that you did that you said I'm an artist oh wow I still struggle with that (laughs) it's hard when you're an artist to recognize these things I can look at something after I've done it and be like yes that was art but when I'm doing things it doesn't really feel like art a lot of the times well you know what so let me ask because we got this conversation the other day um, with an artist did where she said that her art was work okay is your art work um well I know because I avoid work. I don't think any of my work is work. I wouldn't do it if it felt like work. It's fun and it's it 
it's something else entirely. It's like having a drive to do. So, I mean, it's work in the same sense that, you know, preparing your food is work or getting up and taking a shower is work. It's just something that's going to happen. It's so natural. The art's just going to flow. Sometimes it feels like work when I know that there's a set set steps that I need to do. Making molds and preparing materials in a certain way can be uh, tedious. And so sometimes it feels like work, but the vision the driving force is not work at all. Okay. Well, I think it lends in perfectly to my next question would be, do you want to discuss the critic in your head, if there is one there? Um, yes. My critic is pretty outspoken. Does, it, does he or she have a name? Uh, Katie Hoffman. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm probably my own uh, biggest critic, but the the way that I that I'm approaching any art is usually in a critical manner, not like necessarily a, in a negative way, but just can't help but be critical of your own uh, your own work, and then to also reflect on other artworks through your own lens. And so, anytime that I'm criticizing an artwork or something, it's probably to do with my own self and my own sense of of critique against my own work. And so, yeah, I can be hard on myself. This is the hard part, right? Talking about your inner critic and... Yeah, because we've got, like Tyler, our, our our teacher from the high school, his inner critic, is his name is Bruno. <laughs> so. so I don't even name mine. It's just this thing called anxiety. Yeah. It lives in my chest and occasionally makes me not want to get out of That's bed where it morning. is. It's like in a little cave right there. <laughs> yeah, I can point to my critic. <laughs> Oh, so it's a hobbit that lives in your cave in your chest. Yeah, and it can be quite mean sometimes, like Katie's. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. But in a way, if you don't have that inner critic, then it kind of keeps you from moving forward. It's a balance. You need just the right amount of critic to get yourself motivated to do your best work. But then at the same time, if your critic is too noisy, it prevents work. So you kind of have to have a good relationship with your inner critic. Absolutely. And that's always a work in progress. So Katie, what gets your juices flowing? Sometimes it's really hard to find inspiration. I have a studio at home and that gets hard. It's hard to to be at home and to separate that and to feel free enough to do something without considering, you know, I'm making a mess or, oh, I have to go buy milk or, you know, like the world really gets in into that space. And so I think that the best way to get started for me is just to go and be like immersed in that space. I like to have my materials out. You know, I like to be looking at uh, things that I've collected. I have boxes of and cupboards full. I mean, I have entire rooms of my house full of just stuff that I've collected. And because I'm inspired by it, like I like the design of it, or I like the colors in this, or this is a material that I picked up and was instantly felt like, oh, I'm going to make this into something someday. And so if I don't know what to do, or if I need to get started, I just go look at stuff. I'll go down in my studio and I'll start looking through the cupboards and I'll find materials and I'll be digging out pieces or I'll be looking for one thing and come across 10 others. And before I know it, I'm down a tangent making something completely different it gets going eventually. I also tend to stop projects, and so I'll have piles of unfinished projects. And so if I need to get out some creative energy, I can just go down there and 
basically pick up where I left off. And sometimes I have picked up a piece of artwork and began working with it years after first starting it and then and bring it to this fruition that was nothing I ever envisioned to begin with, but it really needed that time and like that separation from between the first stage and the second stage of making to really get to where it ultimately gets. And, and, so, and that's really interesting because you're not the only one who, yeah. who has said that. Interesting. So that's not unique then, which is good. That's kind of validating because I'll take big breaks sometimes. I feel like, you know, I don't know how I'm going to get back to this piece, but then once I let go of that rigidness of this is how it's supposed to end and just kind of like get back into the making and then let it be what it's going to be, then that's when my best work gets done. So Yeah, and one of our artists in Mesquite, name is Floyd Johnson, he told us of a piece that um, he set aside and 24 years later, he broke in two and, and finished up two pieces out of one. Nice, <laughs> nice. That is, that's perfect. So Kate, when you're doing this, you're in your studio working. Do you listen to music? Do you listen to books on books on tape? I would show my age by saying books <laughs> on tape, but audio books or maybe podcasts. Well, when I don't have a new episode of the Art Box to listen to, <laughs> I um, I do like music and I like to listen to TV. But what I'll do is I'll put on a show that I've that I've watched. A million times it's like having a friend over just the comfortable voices or like some dialogue in the background but nothing that's engaging that I need to like focus on or that's gonna distract me so I will put on one of a few different TV series that will just play in the background and it doesn't matter I'll just it'll go through the seasons and then I'll just start over on episode one again because it's more about having it's like having a friend over you know like it's just a way to to fill that silence yeah you're not really hearing it yeah exactly just white noise for you so name one of the tv series (laughs) you're gonna say that um so i have some embarrassing um (laughs) um creature comforts there's a show called gilmore girls that i've listened to like a hundred times Oh my gosh, me and my daughter have gone through that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and my daughter is familiar with it as well. Like, I don't know, maybe it's like a, yeah, a mom and, and daughter thing. But yeah, so it's something that I first saw 20 years ago. And then I just, it was on Netflix. I started listening to it and then it ends and I just listened to it again. So I've listened to that series, like I said, literally a hundred times. But, um, but not watching it just because it's the voices in the background and like, I also really like sitcoms and I'm very nostalgic. So I will watch something like from my childhood, like Roseanne, you know, or like some sitcom that's just, it's, it's like mind candy, you know, you don't need, there's no thinking involved in this. And so I really kind of like that nineties sitcom genre for that because it's really easily digestible. Lately it was Seinfeld. I put Seinfeld on like over and over. Um, but that one kind of, kind of got annoying. (laughs) But it's, you know, so it's kind of, I guess it's, it's a nostalgia thing. Even when I listen to music, I tend to listen to the same music over and over. So. How interesting. I bet you didn't think we were going to talk about that today. No. <laughs> I didn't think the Gilmore Girls was going to come up. Kind, yeah. Kind of you, a got, you got this huge smile on your face when <laughs> she said Gilmore Girls. I know. And now whenever I see something that Katie creates, I'm going to think Gilmore Girls. I'm going to think. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, what episode out. was on in the background when she was doing this? 
Yeah, guilty pleasures. So we haven't really talked about what mediums you explore or utilize. Do you want to maybe elaborate on that? Yeah, so I'm really more of a sculptural artist and I do assemblage work. And so I like found objects, pieces of things. I collect things from around the neighborhood. I've been known to be walking through a parking lot and just pick up handfuls of nuts and bolts and bits of wire and stuff like that. It tends to follow me home. I have whole bins full of flyers and brochures from art exhibits and tickets from metros and different cities and places I had been. Whole bin from when I was living in Europe and we call it the Euro trash. And so sometimes if we're collaging, we want to go through something, it's like, let's go dig through the Euro trash and find some, you know, interesting bits to work with. I really enjoy, uh, you know, metal sculpture. I don't really have access to a foundry where I am. So that's kind of on hiatus, but I still have things that I'm making molds of and, you know, you know, that I, so I can prepare for when I'm ready to do these things. Again, it'll be sitting around for a couple of years, probably until I, you know, have access to a foundry again, but that's the way these things go. Sometimes I really enjoy working in ceramic medium I have a kiln and a pottery studio at home that's just inactive at the moment since I moved. There's a, that's one of those really laborious kind of art forms where I need to have, you know, an electrician involved and someone to come and, you know, install things for me. And so it's not fully set up, but um, I've adapting, I've got fire pit where I can do some, some pit firing and Raku type ceramic. I like to dabble in just about anything. And again, it's more about the assemblage. It's not so much making one art piece as like setting the scene. And so I really, I'll create a piece that is a picture on a wall with a shelf, with an object, with a blanket below it and chairs and things that are all positioned. And all of it is making a statement about XYZ when it's, there's really all these very unrelated kind of elements. So drawing from everything from, gosh, what do I have down in my studio that might surprise you? Vintage vacuum cleaners and just anything that has that look could follow me home and end up in one of my pieces. You just really never know. Isn't that great? Yeah. Um, now I know why you had so many boxes to move. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. Anyone who's ever seen one of my art rooms is slightly scared and shocked and um, usually saying, oh, this is my studio, and then it's just this overwhelming wall of boxes and, and stuff, and, you know, then sometimes the boxes would be spilling out, and there's just, like, an island of boxes somewhere in my house, and I'll throw a blanket over it. It's like, what's that? It's like, that's art. It's future art. Let's don't worry about it. So it's one of the reasons why I, uh, when I moved, I, you know, I made sure that I had a dedicated art space, so, again, I could separate, like, the the life from the art. And so I can go downstairs, I can be in my studio and it's it's just it's a space dedicated to that versus being in the middle of my house like I always have been before. So <laughs> I would be crawling around on the dining room floor like with a quilt oh gosh, I keep hitting the table with a quilt taped down to the kitchen floor, you know, trying to to hand baste a, a blanket together, you know, because I didn't have the appropriate space to do it. Um, and so now I feel really liberated to to really get creative because I have room to do so. That's pretty neat. Well, Katie, thank you today. Sure. And we have one question left to ask that we ask all of our guests. Uh, what's inspired you this week? 
Oh, this week, well, I was getting ready to come out here for our outing, and so I was very inspired by maps. I have been looking at maps. I've been looking at ways to creatively display and present map data, and I am really drawn to that aesthetic. I love the look of a a quad map, a USGS quad map. I think there's really some appeal there. Some sexy landscapes around here, too. Lots of contour lines. So, um, yeah, that's, that's been my, my inspiration this week. I don't think anybody's ever said maps. <laughs> no, I think that is that side of archaeology, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That is definitely the archaeologist in me coming out. But um, you got to admit, there's something about a contour line. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in the basin and range type topography. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right. What's inspired you this week? Oh, my goodness. Doing... The field work that we've done, I think just being with people who are exploring the landscape and seeing it through their eyes and being with other like-minded individuals as far as creativity as being just a general part of life, like Katie's saying, it's not work, it's just like fixing dinner or it's something that you do. I think that's quite inspiring and it makes me happy about the things that I choose to do. So what about you, Steve? Um, and I'd like to say, actually, today was very inspiring, but for the week, um, on last Saturday night, I got to volunteer um, for an organization doing a fundraiser for teen suicide. And people had a good time. They put their hearts out there. They put a lot of money in the till. Awesome. And it was very inspiring that people care. That's fantastic. That is very fantastic. So, And I probably have the best friends in the world, you guys included. Oh, yeah. Well, I feel blessed to know you. (laughs) Steve, what a great person. Uh, Great resource here in Southern Nevada. So Most definitely. And totally dedicated to this podcast and sharing this information with all of the listeners. Absolutely. Thank you so much for for giving me the time to talk. This has been great. But Katie, you're one of the only ones that say, I want to be on a podcast. I want to be on a podcast. (laughs) Everybody else says, run, run (laughs) quick. Right then, right you were... You were okay with that? Yeah, um, I mean, I do public speaking. I do public outreach, and I think this is a great way to engage with a different audience. I think Katie might feel similarly. Oh, yeah. I feel like what we're doing is worth getting out there. Admittedly, Rhea is much more comfortable in front of a crowd, but talking to you guys is not like talking to a crowd, so... Hi to everyone else who's listening, but thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk without feeling you know, overwhelmed by talking to everyone at once. Yeah, and I, I always put it that it's like three or four friends just sitting down and having a BS session. Yeah. Because it got, it gets comfortable. Absolutely. Well, it's been, it's been a great experience doing um, this project and having Steve involved in the project. So doing this podcast with you today is just an extension of that. And I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. So thank, thank you. you. You want to do one more time of um, where and when the, uh, Yeah, absolutely. So Modern Desert Markings, the exhibition, will be opening at the Barrick Museum of Art on the campus of UNLV on 14 March 2023. And our opening reception will be held on uh, 24 March 2023. And that exhibit will be running until the 8th of July. Oh, okay. The 8th of July. Yeah. So you'll have plenty of time to come out and uh, see what we're doing. We also have 
a schedule of programming that will be announced at a later date. But so we're going to have speakers. There will be auxiliary programming online and lots of peripheral things to explore that will be involved in this project. So lots more to come. Fun time. Thank you, guys. Red, thank you. You're welcome. Katie, thank you. All right. And that's it for the Art Box. Broadcasting from Mesquite, Nevada, in the scenic Mojave Desert, the Art Box sponsors thank you for listening. To find our next and past podcasts, find us online at mesquitefineartcenter.com, where all accompanying images and links are available on the Art Box page. Questions, comments, opinions, and concerns can be sent to artboxvv at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of its hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Virgin Valley Artists Association.